0: Welcome to week three of ES 250 Intro to African American Studies. I'm your host, once again, Dr. Courtney Cox. And one of the things I think that, in mirroring our previous weeks, it's important to note that when we think about music, especially African American music, it's not bound to any particular genre, although there are many genres where African Americans are heavily represented. Um, One of the things I want to think about as we read a slew of these essays from They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us is using that as a template for your future assignments where you'll be engaging in critical essays of your own writing in the style of Hanif Abdurraqib. And I think one of the things that is helpful for me in moving towards that is your next assignment, which is a playlist assignment, which is what you'll turn in instead of doing a quiz for this week. The playlist assignment as noted on canvas is worth 10% of your grade. I sent out an email as well that notes that we will have a listing party next week when this class would typically meet at 4 p.m. Pacific time. This is really just an opportunity for us to all kind of connect listen to music together and think through the readings in a more interactive way. Music is such a communal activity that, for me, it seems really difficult to think about how to access this particular moment or or think about music in a particular way without having something that we listen to together and interact with together. Please stay tuned. Um, future assignments will also be posted um, in some depth and I'll make sure to also discuss them here. So the important thing with the playlist assignment is to think about creating a picking a song first of all that to you represents african-american culture african-american music picking that song adding it to the playlist the link is provided in both the module and on the assignment itself thinking about african-american music as a cultural formation that bricolage we talked about before that is about structuring and understanding the cut and mix the aesthetic that Hepdige and others have talked about in terms of the ways that it's a, a collage of various cultures influences experiences that is by nature what it means to be african-american and then i want your liner note which is 150 to 500 words don't spend too much time on it you're just describing the one song your relationship, to the, your relationship to the song um, through various texts, for example, through the history of the song, it's a very loose understanding of what a liner note is. So think about liner note is very old school and you used to have a CD. <laughs> when people used to buy CDs, it's like Sam Goody, I'm very much dating myself here. When you open up the CD, you look inside, it tells you who produced the song, perhaps the lyrics to the song, all this, but there's a liner note that tells you more about the song. And that's really what I want. And I provide an example for weight in the Water which is the only song that um, I posted within this particular playlist. And thinking about um, why you chose the song and then what we should know about the song, that particular iteration, if it's a song that's been covered many times, um, what that song makes you think of, for example. Um, And then it's something that's short but well-written, something that you edit, you curate. And what I'll do is, of course, once everyone has contributed, we will have 41 songs. 41 liner notes, and I'll post that for all of us to enjoy for the rest of the term. All right, let's get into the readings. So this week you read a series of Abdura keep essays about music. I know you might have seen this particular day on the syllabus and thought, ugh, why do we have so much assigned? However, each of the essays are brief but beautiful, simple in their execution but brilliantly complex in their emotion. What I love about these pieces, especially read together, is that they provide the unexpected. For example, Prince's halftime performance at the Super Bowl is less about the music itself, but the magic, the alchemy of that particular show in that particular space. He explores punk as a space as much as he delves into punk as sound. Future, a rapper you may not think about in terms of any sort of depth, is presented as a comfort in times of mourning, of loss. So I just wanna think about all of these things as we're reading through and as you start to curate your own kind of voice when we begin to talk about these cultural critic papers that you'll write throughout the term. You may not have the same voice um, as Hanif who's writing as a poet, as a critic that writes these really poignant pieces that connect to larger social cultural issues. But you do have a template that helps you understand the length, that helps you understand the need to do research, to kind of delve in. We get a really arc of someone like Future's career, things that require us to take time to listen, to think, to pace. So it's not something that's really written last minute, but it's also not something that's very long. So I really want to emphasize as we go through that that critical cultural essay is an opportunity for you to delve into something that you enjoy, that you think about, and in many ways understand how this particular format lends itself very well to thinking about various forms of african-american culture i love the afropunk essay because it talks about the whiteness of punk spaces and as well as the search for community for safety for not only fans of punk music and the history of punk itself but also what it means to be a black person in this space this idea of like punk is the space for outcasts for people that are considered outsiders and there is a way that punk is speaking to black voices even as Durkeeb and others have acknowledged punk has a very strong history especially its British history of being a very white space for a very particular type of white male body in searching for that community for safety he finds something in Afropunk and Afropunk as you'll see offers a way for an alternative form of, of blackness outside of this mainstream understanding of what black music should sound like He writes that, quote, Afropunk by itself isn't going to save us or dismantle a racist world. But if punk rock was born in part out of the need for white escape, Afropunk signals something provided for black escape from what the actions of white escape breeds. End quote. That's on page 57. And one of the things that I think in, in doing that is thinking about this decision he makes about choosing to become invisible and what invisibility means. He writes that, quote, a reminder that choosing invisibility means giving yourself over to what many systems in this country already deem you, end quote. That's on page 58. And he uses the example of one of the kids that's in the mosh pit. There's a black kid that goes unconscious and is pretty much stepped over as people approach the stage. And this idea of choosing invisibility over the hyper visibility that black bodies also typically come under is an alternative that isn't necessarily better, he writes. Afropunk, this idea of a creation of a series of spaces, of concerts, festivals, that offer alternative spaces for folks that are into something like punk music, into current iterations of rock music, metal. He writes that, quote, I don't know how to be honest enough to say that there isn't a place for kids like us, so we need to make our own, and nothing is more punk rock than that. Nothing is more punk rock than surviving in a hungry sea of white noise, end quote. That's on page 58. And so I'm thinking about what it means, um, punk rock as a genre of survival. Punk as its form of, of anti-ness, mostly anti-capitalism. But it's also thinking about what it means to need your own space within punk rock. That punk rock is not the most accommodating, as he writes, for women for folks of color, for queer folks. And he says, nothing is more punk rock than that. This DIY culture of punk that says, create your own, make your own, is also lending that out to folks that create something like Afropunk. You can see some of the aesthetics of Afropunk on the module page. It's really um, for me just a very small sample of kind of the culture of it. Afro-punk on Instagram is a larger community of folks. Um, they post year-round, not just during concert or festival season. You can see a lot of the ways that they are thinking about forms of blackness in punk. To beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. There's not a lot that I have to say about the Prince essay. I will say that um, as someone that does work located at the intersection of music and sport, Prince's performance during the Super Bowl halftime show was a really, and still for me currently and my co-researchers, a really important nexus of music and sport and thinking about just a cultural historical moment. I've posted the entire performance of Prince, the behind the scenes piece, where you see the epigraph in the essay talks about about Prince saying, can you make it rain harder? And that quote is in the behind the scenes piece that I've posted. But understanding that performance as really something unlike anything that the, the Super Bowl halftime had seen before then, I think is really interesting just in terms of what Prince means in terms of representation, in terms of media, in terms of just being an incredible performer. That is very much um, different from what he's offering in Afropunk. Afropunk um, and Prince, who has a very funk r and b entrance in terms of African American music, is in many ways showing the different sides of black music, African American music specifically. And then we have like the future piece miles Go a pound of gas in the rap. And we're thinking about memory and mourning through someone that made a song called March Madness. And so one of the things that I think is really fascinating, I've posted the March Madness official video. If you watch the video and you know the song, the song sounds like a typical kind of pop understanding of rap music. However... A closer look helps us understand how future, in many ways, operates as someone that is using music to talk about larger issues of pain, mourning, regret, self inflicted wounds. To read future, as many have, as mumble rap, as drug music, glorifying these things. There's a way that rap music, southern rap music, trap music, most specific, can be read as excess, as party music only, as basic, as structurally lazy. Just as the sing song of our southern twangs, I'm saying this as a person from Texas, our accents emphasize slowness. But Hanif is asking us to think otherwise, what also might be there? And in tying Future's music with his own grief towards the the death of his mother and the ongoing nature of that grief, what it means to lose someone, whether it's romantically, whether it's in terms of, of death, I think there's something that is relatable in that. I think that it isn't a way of glorifying the music, you know, not glorifying a particular lifestyle. It's actually saying there is a specific emptiness, a sadness that he's pointing to. Hanif writes that quote, it is more than simply several odes to a vice. It's a discussion of the vice as a way to undo memory. There's still the boastful Atlanta hustler persona that Future cultivated on his past albums but there's also an exhaustion present, end quote. And that's on page 271, 272. You know, a recurring joke on Twitter is that while in the outside future might seem to boast and brag about an unhealthy life of excess, he's very clearly dictating a cry for help that we love to turn up to. His pain is our great pleasure. In the interview, Hanif cites, Future says he spends his time in the studio with coding in a notebook until he loses track of time. I think now in the midst of, you know, what we're in right now, I think I can relate to this loss of time, but of course, you know, Minus the codeine. One of the things that's really poignant for me in thinking about the future piece um, is the anecdote at the end where Hanif's talking about listening to the latest future album while crying in the magazine store at the airport. So a very public space, but crying, thinking about what it would mean for his mom to see his byline to see him in a paper that he grew up reading. He says, quote, the woman who works at the newsstand taps me on the shoulder and asks me if I can turn down the music in my headphones because it's distracting other customers. She walks away, never saying anything about the fact that I was crying in the middle of her store, end quote. And to me, that's really how a lot of people receive Future's music. This complete lack of understanding of the pain behind the music, right? Reading Future is perhaps a blues man, perhaps even more than a rapper. And then the way that we are able to overlook someone's pain in order for our own comfort, for our own pleasure. And that's really important. And for me, it really ties in with the Michael Jackson Whit Houston essay. What is that essay about? There's a way that he's very poetically kind of doing this artsy reading of this photograph. Heaven as the only chart worth topping is the quote from page 140. What does that mean? In the piece, he's really breaking down in a really poetic way the the perils and pains of fame, the penalty, what it means to be so talented in this particular space. And there are many ways that I feel like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston are two people that have both been packed and unpacked in a particular way. What are the ways that fame, in many ways, has completely shaped, tarnished, killed these folks? When we think about someone like Future who is writing about his drug use, writing about his pain, the loneliness he feels. And then we think about predecessors like Michael Jackson, like Whitney Houston, thinking about how addiction, their downfall is rooted in this very inability to cope with what it might mean to be black, famous, rich in a particular way. The loneliness that comes with that, the isolation. Part of that is in the ways that you're represented. That speaks to the Nina Simone piece that he writes, starting with Pirate Jenny. You gentlemen can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors And I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking Maybe once you tip me and it makes you feel sweet southern town in this old hotel, but you'll never guess to who you're talking. Of Dure Keeps says, quote, I've always held the legacy of Nina Simone close because I know how easily it could be taken from me and served back to America as something more pleasing. Pirate Jenny isn't one of Nina Simone's more famous songs. There are plenty of songs that you might know of hers, especially songs that have been sampled, used by other artists, covered many, many times over. And Nina Simone as a particularly interesting person to think about how her rejection of many of the downfalls of fame, how they happened to her, how she chose to push back as long as possible to avoid what happens to a Michael Jackson, a Whitney Houston, to understand how you might be read, represented. Hanif writes, quote, I have been thinking a lot lately about how Black people have to hold on to our stories or tell them for ourselves, end quote page 195. We'll talk about this more in our next podcast when we think about appropriation. But the way that he's writing it is as the announcement and the filming of a film where Zoe Saldana is playing Nina Simone. To speak of black women becoming ghosts, he thinks about the fact that Zoe Saldana, who's read as a very attractive, very um, racially ambiguous Hollywood glamorous star, is in many ways completely opposed to the project, physically, aesthetically, that is Nina Simone. To understand why that casting, why the darkening of Zoe Sondana's skin to match the blackness, the darkness of Nina Simone would render an essay to be called Nina Simone was very black. Again, we return to this idea of invisibility, of keeping it low. Hanif writes that, quote, it is easy to be black and non-confrontational if nothing is on fire. And so it has never been easy to be black and non-confrontational. The silence may reward you briefly, but it always comes at the risk of something greater, your safety, your family, how the world sets its eyes upon you and everyone you love, end quote. That's on page 196. And so really I'm thinking about the attempts at being invisible in the punk space, aligned with this idea of what it means to be Nina Simone, a very outspoken, a very radical, very protest-ready person, where something is always on fire, especially thinking about the era that Nina Simone is coming up in. I'm thinking also of what what that representation means in terms of documenting one's life after, who was cast to play you to represent your struggle, your life, And it very much is rooted in what Nina Simone looks like, what she represents, the texture of her hair, the color of her skin, the roundness of her lips. All of these things matter because it shapes the way the world sees her, how she sees herself. Hanif very poignantly points to this when he talks about taking up the trumpet. His love of Nina Simone and seeing himself through her encouraged him as a teenager to join or attempt to join a a jazz band. He writes that, quote, when I chose to take up jazz at 13, driven in part by Nina's influence, my white jazz teacher told me that my lips were, quote, too big to play trumpet, end quote. This led to my father marching into his office with record after record of large lipped black trumpet players, spreading them all out on his desk while I sat in the corner and watched, end quote. That's on page 197. And I think what's interesting about that is the way that various forms of music, jazz being read as a very black African American specific art form that comes as a melding of so many different types of music in this country. To be told that one's lips were too big to play trumpet erases a history full of big-lipped, incredible, brilliant musicians. In the next podcast, we'll think about what it means for a white agnostic group of singers to sing gospel in Australia. I'll also tell the white Baptist